Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. This evening's reading is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 8. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your grace towards us, that you have given us your word, the Bible to show us yourself, to show us your ways and what it is that you require of us. Please help us now as we unpack these words that we've heard read tonight. Please move our hearts and our minds that we might know you better and live a life that is worthy of you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do take a seat. And if you'd like to turn back to that uh, great reading we had from 2 Timothy... Uh, page 1195 in the church bibles page 1195 Uh, this morning if you were here we looked at the beginning of uh, 2 timothy chapter 1 it's probably paul's last letter written from prison just before his death so it's a letter which is looking forward to the future and handing on the baton as it were he wants timothy to take over and to continue what he has been doing. But more immediately, Paul wants Timothy to come and see him in prison. So in chapter 4, verse 9, just over the page, he says uh, very plainly, do your best to come to me quickly. Come quickly. Uh, Verse 21, please get here before winter. Please get here quickly. Now, that's probably because he wants his cloak, and it's a bit chilly. Uh, It's a bit like Sheffield, I suppose, on a normal day. Uh, But it's also because he doesn't want Timothy to back away from him. This letter really is a call to loyalty. Loyalty to the gospel, yes, but also loyalty to Paul. And this morning we looked at what I said is a key verse in the whole letter. Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And we looked at that idea of being ashamed of the gospel, of being ashamed of Jesus. 
So we saw how we might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel because it's the message about a crucified Messiah. And crucifixion was not a very popular thing to have happen to you in those days. And we saw how the testimony about Jesus was outlined beautifully for us in verses 9 and 10. It is a message of free grace to God's chosen people who are heading for immortality in heaven. And we thought a bit about how that might sound a bit laughable to people and hence be a potential cause for embarrassment. Well, this evening we're going to unpack the rest of verse 8 and uh, what its implications are. And that means looking here at this command not to be ashamed of Paul. Now, that's a bit startling, isn't it, really, when you think about it? Not to be ashamed of Paul. I mean, Jesus, well, he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God himself. You can see why loyalty to Jesus is important. But Paul, he's just a man. How dare he place himself alongside Jesus and the gospel and demand that Timothy show him loyalty as well? And does that mean that he actually wants us to show loyalty to Paul as well? Well, we need to start by considering the situation um, for Paul. We already know from verse 8 that he's a prisoner. He's in jail. Why is he in jail? Well, after reminding Timothy of the gospel in verses 9 and 10, he says in verse 11, uh, and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. He's suffering because he teaches the gospel. Some people didn't like what he was teaching, and they ganged up on him. When he was beaten by a mob in Jerusalem, he was arrested Currently, he's languishing in a cell, awaiting trial on trumped-up charges. And as the trial wore on, all his friends deserted him. So he tells us in chapter 4, verse 16, At my first defence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. He was abandoned, left on his own, with no character witnesses to speak up for him in his defence, no friends to support him and pray with him and help him to get food and that kind of thing, which they didn't provide for you in Roman prisons. So he says in chapter 1, verse 15, you're aware that all those who are in Asia have deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. All of them have deserted me. It sounds a bit like a, a massive overstatement, doesn't it? Sounds like an overstatement. Everybody's deserted me. But it was true. No one had left to his defence. Even Phygelus and Hermogenes. I don't know who they are. Uh, They're not mentioned anywhere else. But presumably Timothy knows who they are. They're they're well known to, to Timothy and to Paul. They must have been former friends. Maybe even colleagues in the ministry, don't you think? It must have hurt for Paul to write their names next to the words, deserted me. Timothy must have been very disappointed to hear this. Even Phygelus, even Phygelus didn't stand by him. Well, how had it come to this? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Surely if there's one person that Paul can count on, it must be Timothy. You would have thought. But no, I think Paul even senses that Timothy might be tempted to distance himself from his spiritual father. But why? 
Why would you be embarrassed by Paul? That's the first thing I want us to consider this evening. Why be embarrassed by Paul? Why be embarrassed by the Apostle Paul? And I think there are several reasons that you might be. For a start, it's because of his status, Paul's status. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, he writes. He's in prison, he's a prisoner. Not a nice, open prison in the home counties, you know, with TV and that kind of thing, but a dirty, stinking, dark, difficult-to-find Roman prison. Being chained up in an unhygienic, rat-infested cell drove many Roman prisoners to suicide as they were abandoned by their families out of shame or fear. It was a society obsessed with status, having a powerful code of shame and honour. And once you were branded a criminal in that world, you were the bottom of the heap and you would find it very difficult to rise again to a higher status. Now, I don't know if all that sounds a little bit distant to us here in 21st century England, but in his excellent commentary on 2 Timothy, Chris Green warns us that this concept of status can have a very contemporary application. He says, the same patterns are visible in our society and in our churches today. Some congregations have a higher status than others, whether because of their size, their resources, their membership. Of course, no one would ever refer to high status churches because that would be too crude. The term we use instead is strategic. He goes on to say, Paul found himself in a low status position in a deeply status-driven culture. Prison was a place of dishonour and shame. It was, to their eyes, definitely not strategic. Now, to polite society, then, that's the end of Paul. I mean, he's a nobody. And in the eyes of many, if not most, church people, that was the end of Paul. So why should Timothy be ashamed of Paul? Well, because everybody else was. At the, uh, the church growth conference, or the EMA, the Ephesian Ministry Assembly of AD 63, people come up to Timothy. Oh, you're not still sticking with that loser Paul, are you? You know he's a bit passé since that uh, little incident with the riot in Ephesus and the arrest and everything. If you want to get ahead in ministry these days, Timothy, it's best to forget about Paul and his funny little ways. We've got a seminar in our church on new methods of church growth this afternoon with a big speaker from a thriving church. You should come and hear him. Tempted to be ashamed of Paul, the prisoner, embarrassed about being associated with him? You bet. If you were here this morning, you'd remember that I said I'd emailed a dozen of my contemporaries from Vicar Training Factory, from Theological College, and I asked them if they'd ever been ashamed of the gospel or of Paul well one minister friend uh, wrote to me very clearly about this issue of status what's his temptation he says I want to appear successful to be respected by other evangelical ministers have people praise the things I've done have the sort of ministry that gets a good write-up in evangelicals now I don't want to serve God unrecognized in difficulty and obscurity. I don't 
want to be in a small church. Now that is a temptation for every minister. But the fact is, if the Apostle Paul, the greatest theologian and missionary of the last 2,000 years, could serve God in a shameful prison cell, well then we don't need to have some big international ministry or be in a big strategic church in order to be significant and useful in God's eyes. Paul knew what difficulty and obscurity and opposition was like. Elsewhere in the Bible, we hear that some people thought he was an unimpressive preacher, a weedy little man with laughably little skill of oratory. But look at us. We're all gathered here 2,000 years later around a few verses of one of his letters trying to understand every last detail. It just goes to show, doesn't it, how wrong a worldly perspective on these things can be. A worldly perspective would deploy the great theologian to the big strategic church and God puts him in prison. Now that might well be why Phygelus and Hermogenes and all the others have deserted Paul. I think it was certainly a part of the reason why others left. In uh, chapter 4, there's lots of personal remarks in this letter. More people mentioned in this this letter than in any other of Paul's letters apart from Romans. Look at uh, chapter 4 verse 10. He tells us, uh, do your best to come to me quickly because Demas, uh, because he loved this world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Now, it doesn't say that all these men, uh, Demas, Crescens, Titus, it doesn't say say that they have abandoned the ministry. It doesn't say that they've stopped believing in Jesus, but they have abandoned Paul. Demas, for worldly reasons, because he loved this world, And the others too, I think. Of course, many would never even consider Christian ministry as a vocation for the same worldly reasons of status. I mean, why demean yourself and voluntarily slip down the ladder of social acceptability? Why take up Christian leadership in in a church which is dwindling in importance? Much better to carry on with a job that mum would be proud of than to give it all up for the kind of low-status, low-paid ministry advocated by Paul. People are ashamed because of status. Another reason that Timothy might be tempted to be ashamed of Paul has to do with what Paul taught. People are ashamed of Paul because of status, but secondly, because of his doctrine. We've already considered why some people might find his doctrine, uh, his gospel in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 a bit embarrassing. Uh, It can sound bizarre or strange or too good to be true that this man died on a cross and rose again three days later and promises a resurrection like that to all those who trust in him. Sounds fanciful to many in Timothy's congregation just as it may do to us in, in our day and age. And the fact that Paul urges Timothy in verse 13 not to depart from the pattern of sound teaching that he learned from Paul also shows that this was a prime reason why some people were deserting him. They didn't like what he taught. 
But that is just obvious, isn't it? It's just obvious that people don't like Paul's doctrine. All my friends said this when they emailed me back. It seems to me, wrote one, that Christians can be ashamed of Paul because he's perceived by some to be sexist or against women. It's interesting, notes another, how Paul has always been the sticking point and still is. Uh, He admits to being somewhat apologetic about Paul's teaching on marriage, for instance, because he fears what people will think about him. Uh, another, another pastor in a middle-of-the-road church uh, somewhere up here in the beautiful north of England uh, says this, Out here in the hinterland, almost everybody is embarrassed by Paul and his message. We much prefer to speak about the gospel being the words of Jesus. Being Pauline, being of Paul, is an insult rather than a good thing. He goes on, as such, it is always tempting for me to say, hmm, yes, Paul did get carried away, didn't he? He is fearsome at times. Mm. His ethics are particularly reviled in our church. Now, there's an old trick to say that, to say, oh, we like Jesus, but we're not so sure about Paul. That's particularly common. You'll have heard that yourselves. Jesus, of course, was gentle and mild, and never said anything controversial. And uh, Paul was harsh and judgmental. Jesus was just lovely to everybody. Paul is the one who makes all the politically incorrect statements. So let's just say we're Jesus Christians and leave it at that, shall we? Paul, well, he's interesting, but not to be taken too seriously. Whether it's what Paul says about homosexuality or what he says about women in church leadership or what he says about marriage or what he writes about the cross and judgment and church discipline, it's tempting, it's tempting and would be extremely convenient in our ecclesiastical context to simply forget about Paul. A godly, gentle family man who pastors another middle-of-the-road Anglican church says this, when in the space of two months, the church warden, the resident retired clergyman and the organist all independently resign because of your message that is being preached, and when you look at your children and you see their confusion that somebody wants to shout at their daddy on a Sunday morning, and when you know that a small change in the message is all that is needed to make all the trouble disappear. Then, I tell you, you are tempted to water it down. You are tempted to water down the Bible, and especially Paul. Well, why doesn't he shy away from it then? He wrote back to me. God has told me two things that help me to stand fast. First, that like it or not, life and immortality are found only in the gospel of Jesus. And second, that to face trouble in preaching the gospel is not at all unusual. That is exactly what Paul is saying as well in this chapter. Chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, Despite what I'm going through, despite what is happening to me, I am not ashamed. I know whom I have believed. I'm convinced he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. Paul endures suffering because he knows Jesus. As my friend puts it, he knows that life and immortality are only found in the gospel of Jesus. And he's convinced that his power and his presence are with him in the midst of hardship. It's interesting, that verse. What is, what is Jesus guarding in that verse? 
You look at it again, verse 12, verse, uh, verse 12 there. What is Jesus guarding? Literally, it says, Jesus can guard my deposit. And in verse 14, um, Paul uses the same word, deposit. Guard the good deposit, uh, which is the gospel itself that Timothy is, is meant to guard. It's used that way on the other side, actually, as well, on uh, the last page of 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 6, verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Guard the deposits entrusted to you, literally. So it probably means that Jesus guards Paul's gospel, Paul's doctrine. But it might also mean, in verse 12 at least, um, it might be guarding what Paul has entrusted to Jesus. That is his life, his eternal security. You could read it either way. Paul knows and he trusts his saviour. And he's confident as he waits for that day to come. The day of judgment and the day of reward. Like it or not, only Paul's gospel will help us on that day. So Timothy might be tempted, I guess, to be ashamed of Paul because of his status or because of his doctrine. But often the temptation to distance ourselves from Paul is a little bit more subtle than that. We might also be tempted to be ashamed of Paul's tactics. That's my third point, Paul's tactics. Because that's partly why Paul's in prison in the first place, isn't it? He went around preaching the gospel openly. He said things like, quote, Gods made with hands are no gods at all. Well, that's not very sensitive in a place like Ephesus, where the economy revolved around a thriving trade in little silver statues of the goddess Artemis. And what happened in Ephesus? Do you remember from the rest of the Bible? Remember what happened? There was a riot when Paul said that against Paul and against the Christians. So, you know, people are going to say, look, this gospel of Jesus, it just brings trouble. It's preachers like this Paul bloke are disturbers of the peace. Now, part of the book of Acts is, um, part of the purpose of the book of Acts is to show us that all the trouble that's whipped up in these places like Ephesus originates with those who feel threatened by the gospel. They start the riots, not the Christians, who are peaceful, law-abiding people. But, the accusation might well stick. You can just imagine people saying, well, you know, Paul's tactics were a bit um, confrontational, weren't they? Perhaps he could have been a bit more subtle. He could have stopped all those Ephesian Christians, for example, uh, burning all their magic scrolls and throwing away their idols publicly and making a big bonfire out of them all, which is what they did. Why not, why not just do that? Just do that privately. Just do it privately, quietly, rather than trying to make a point. And often we do have legitimate differences over tactics when it comes to working for the gospel. Some good orthodox people want to do things one way, while others will choose a different approach. Same message, but different tactics. Recently, um, I don't know if you heard about this, the, there was the story of Harry Hammond. Does anyone know about Harry Hammond? A 69-year-old pensioner who was attacked in the street 
by young people, ended up um, poor man flat on his back in the middle of the street, had uh, mud and clods of earth thrown at him and somebody poured water all over him. Who was arrested for causing a public disturbance? He was. Now you might think it's strange that the man who was assaulted was arrested rather than the young people who attacked him. But here's why. Harry Hammond was a Christian, an open-air evangelist, and that day he held in his hands a poster which said, Stop immorality, stop homosexuality, Jesus is Lord. Now what do you think about that? I've got to tell you, I am not a placard-waving sort of person. It just is not me. So by nature, the first thing that I, I want to do when I hear a story like that is just say, I wouldn't do that. That's far too provocative. But it's only a short step from there, from saying that, to saying, well, you know, he had it coming, didn't he? And to do that is to side with Harry Hammond's attackers. I instinctively want to distance myself from people that I might label extremists. Don't you? So if a church organisation or a group appears to me to be too right-wing or too strident or not sophisticated enough, my instinct is to shy away from it talking about people who may be fine gospel preachers in a good context but some of us may not like the tactics that they use or not get on with them personally or think that they could have avoided the trouble if only they'd done things differently or not been quite so whatever it is and we are tempted to distance ourselves from people who preach the same gospel as another friend of mine writes I want a quiet life. I don't want anything to disturb it. I want to be liked. Well, hands up who doesn't. And he continues, I am embarrassed about association with anybody too fanatical, e.g. Paul. I think Timothy would have have empathised with that. Maybe he too was tempted to be embarrassed by his fanatical friend. Maybe for you it's different. Maybe, maybe it's a, a Christian in your office or your school or your college. You know, someone who's just a little bit too outspoken sometimes. Do you know someone like that? Someone who's a Christian but of whom, well, you're a bit embarrassed. There are many Christians who are not quite of our type. But who are standing up for Jesus and for Paul and the gospel. They may not do it the way that we would like to do it. And so it is tempting to say, I'm not like that. I'm not one of them. And I think that's what many people have done with Paul reading this chapter. They deserted him. They pretended not to know him. It's because it was too uncomfortable. You know, the real problem with that is that Paul isn't just an ordinary Christian in your Christian union or your office or something. Paul wasn't even a bishop. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, a specially commissioned ambassador for the King of Kings himself. He was appointed by Jesus to preach what he preached and do what he did, and still they deserted him. 
Except one man hasn't done that, has he? You notice that at the end of the reading? Uh, One man didn't do that. Chapter 1, verse 16. We hear about Onesiphorus. He often refreshed me, says Paul. He often refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains. Onesiphorus um, provided Paul with much-needed sustenance because there were no nice prison canteens in Roman prisons. And Onesiphorus didn't seem to mind that Paul was of low status. He was probably a businessman of some kind, moving between Ephesus and Rome. And when he was in Rome on business, he was not ashamed of my chains, right, Paul. He wasn't ashamed of being seen with the prisoner. He didn't mind that to embrace Paul was to embrace the squalor and face the same rejection from the world and from a worldly church. Verse 17, he searched for Paul earnestly, it seems. Searched hard, keenly, so that he might be supportive of him in his suffering, just as he was back in Ephesus. And why is Paul mentioning Onesiphorus here? Why do we hear about him? He's got a funny name. Just makes it difficult for the guy who has to do the reading. Is it just to pray for Onesiphorus so that he would be blessed by God? I'm sure that's part of it. But is there more to it as well? Notice that key word ashamed comes up again in verse 16. He was not ashamed of me. Chapter 1 verse 8 says we must not be ashamed of the gospel or ashamed of Paul. Paul himself is not ashamed of the gospel in verse 12. And Onesiphorus is a prime example of what it looks like not to be ashamed of Paul. He's an illustration for us. He is a model for Timothy to follow. When he gets to Rome, Timothy too should be seeking out Paul and unashamedly standing by him. But what can we do, brothers and sisters? It's a a long time since Paul was in prison. It ended many years ago, his imprisonment. By all accounts, he ended his life as a martyr, beheaded for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus, as many of our brothers and sisters have been recently, by ISIS. How can we therefore show loyalty to Paul across the centuries? Is there nothing we can really do to apply that aspect of this passage today? I don't know, maybe the applications in verses 13 and 14, those bits in the middle there. We stand by Paul if we follow and guard Paul's gospel. Verse 13. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Standing by Paul for us means following the gospel as he taught it. His teaching, as we have it recorded for us in Acts and in his letters, provides us with a model, a pattern for us to follow. That is why why God gave him to us. Paul is a gift to us. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And most of us here in this Gentile country are Gentiles. Paul is our gift. So we can follow Paul's gospel, his sound words, it says here. That word sound, verse 13, it just means healthy, as um, you know, footnote in some Bibles puts it. Paul's gospel brings health. It brings life, vigor, vitality to the churches which follow it. So where there is death and stagnation, where there's decline and despair, 
What is needed is not some trendy, updated gospel that is more appealing to modern man. What is needed when churches are dying is the pattern of sound, healthy, life-giving words which Timothy heard from Paul and which we read of here. So we need not only to follow Paul's gospel, but also to guard it, verse 14 says. Guard the good deposits. In a church or a denomination which is torn apart by schisms and distressed by heresies, we need more of Paul, not less. We need more Paul in the Church of England, not less. We must guard his gospel entrusted to Timothy and then through the ages entrusted to us. Because if we don't, then the coming generations will not have a healthy spiritual diet. What will happen to their churches if they only know a mangled, diseased, corrupted version of the gospel, of the good news of the Lord Jesus? That will poison churches. It will ruin fellowships and it will stunt evangelism. Another quote as we draw to a close this evening, words that are often wrongly, as it turns out, attributed to Martin Luther, but still wise and challenging, all the same. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point that the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, then I'm not confessing Christ. Where the battle rages is where the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. I think that's right. It won't make us very popular. But I think that means we have to guard the gospel and its implications in debates which maybe are not at the heart of the gospel itself, but where the Bible's teaching is currently under attack. You know, I didn't get ordained into the Church of England because I wanted to talk about gay marriage or something like that. I want to talk about Jesus and the gospel. But this is forced upon us. We, we have to talk about those things that the world is currently attacking, where the church is currently trying to deny the truth of God. So we need to follow and guard Paul's health-giving words. These words might also bring suffering, but we know for sure that Jesus is able to look after us. And that is the reason Paul keeps mentioning that day, verse 12, verse 18, for instance. He's trying to remind us that any suffering for the gospel now is nothing in the light of the eternal rewards for those who persevere. So if we want to be like Onesiphorus on that day, if we want to be the Onesiphorus of the 21st century, follow Paul's gospel and guard it too. We can only do that with the help of the Holy Spirit, verse 14. He may have entrusted the, the good deposit to us, but that doesn't mean that God has taken his own hands off it. His spirit energises and empowers us to keep and guard the gospel. Only with his help can we spot new threats to it, theologically or philosophically or pastorally. Only he can strengthen us to withstand the inevitable assaults of criticism and rejection 
that may come our way when we follow Jesus and are loyal to his apostles. So let's pray. Let's pray for forward, for all of us here, that we would unashamedly stand by Paul. Let's pray. Praise you, our Heavenly Father, for the Apostle Paul, for his example of perseverance in suffering. Thank you for the gospel, the pattern of sound words entrusted to him and to us. With the help of your spirit within us, please help us to stand by Paul inasmuch as what he wrote and taught is your inspired word to us. Help us to persevere in proclaiming it and suffering for the gospel, along with all those who call upon you from a pure heart, whether we agree with them in every detail or not. We ask this for the glory of your one and only Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen.